Before we begin our episode today, we want to take some time to tell you about a new podcast made by a Desi American that we think you might enjoy. Misrepresented is a podcast that challenges the way we think about South Asia's role in world history. Each episode is a story about a person, place, or a thing that isn't fully remembered or at all completely today. But they don't just unravel the true story, they also tell the story of how history got twisted in the first place. You can listen to the podcast by searching for Misrepresented in the podcast app you're using to listen to our show right now. And with this, we hope you enjoy our episode today. Hey everyone. Welcome to Redefining ABCD. Today's episode will be another Brown Art Network episode, where we'll highlight specific South Asian voices in a variety of professions within the creative community. We'll hear about their creative work, how they navigated themselves through their chosen industry, and any tips they might have for other individuals in the South Asian community looking to pursue a similar career in the arts. Today we'll be talking to Mirnal Gokuli, who's the author of the book Saya Unveiled, South Asian Mental Health Spotlighted, which is a series of interviews of second-generation Indian, Pakistani, and Bangladeshi immigrants discussing their views on mental health in the U.S., U.K., and Canada. We're very excited to have Mirnal here with us to discuss her book, as well as her own understanding of mental health. So welcome, Mirnal. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Just to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Um, so... I am from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I just became an author in May. Um, my book, Saya Unveiled, South Asian Mental Health Spotlighted, um, discusses 11 true stories of second-generation South Asian immigrants who um, navigate their own mental health journeys while living in the West. Um, the stories are written in third person, kind of in a journalistic type of style, because I used to be a form, I used to be a journalist in my city here. And the topics that are talked about are things like healthcare access, um, the cultural stigma against mental health and kind of bridging that gap, um, trauma, loss, death, those sorts of things. And um, the goal is basically to, to educate and inform both um, South, South Asians and beyond about what mental health looks like in our diaspora. That's amazing. And and can you talk a little bit more about your journey leading up to Saya Unveiled? Um, you know, how did you decide you wanted to research spot and spotlight mental health specifically? Um, and you know, just talk a little bit about uh, like your journalism, um, uh, your journalism in uh, background as well as your marketing background. So I studied. I, I have my bachelor's degree in marketing with a minor in journalism. I have always enjoyed writing since I was a young child and I knew that I wanted to have a career in that and that major allowed me to do just that. So for five years, five or six years, I worked in marketing communications full time while being a freelance journalist for two um, papers in my city. One is a Hispanic owned paper. Another is an African-American owned paper. So I would do a lot of community journalism type reporting for those papers. So, so it, things like current events, current events, press conferences, um, politics. And um, throughout that, I reported on several mental health awareness month related events that would discuss stigma in Latino and black communities regarding mental health. And throughout that, I kind of wondered why Asian mental health stigma is not so heavily discussed. And furthermore, when I, I was in therapy myself, I didn't really have any Indian friends that were in therapy as well. So this, so during quarantine, I coincidentally took a free memoir writing class and that instructor taught us about things like self-publishing 
And so I was like, okay, I would like to, I want to write a book. And I brainstormed on topics that of things I'm passionate about. And mental health in the human brain has been one of my special interests for a long time. And, and being that I wanted um, the Asian, the stigma surrounding Asian cu- countries to be talked about, I thought, you know, why not throw a South Asian angle on there as well? I think that would resonate well with me. And Basically, I, I reached out to organiza- nonprofit organizations that um, have to do with South Asian mental health, and they, they threw out submission calls for me out there, and a lot of people were interested in telling their stories, and I just kind of talked to them and went from there. Awesome. And it's really, it's really cool that you were like able to identify something that was lacking that our community was not really like talking about, like mental health, like you mentioned, and you kind of like took action to like make a series of stories to make sure it's a diversified representation. Yeah. Um, so basically what I did with that is I, when I reached out to organizations, I basically said, do you, I literally just did a search South Asian mental health and a lot of organizations came up and I was surprised, but in a totally good way, cause it shows that now people are starting to talk about it. And then I knew that there would definitely be a target market for the book. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess you said you put out a call and you like got a bunch of people like to come and reach out back to you how did you kind of filter that process out for your book because I'm sure you had to like use a limited amount of interviews for your book um I think that so basically my it's funny that my my original intention was to have um about 10 stories half men and half females and I was literally only getting females that were interested for the longest time but I guess that's kind of a whole another topic um (laughs) So basically, I would um, have everyone interested fill out like a form with basic information. I would ask them for their names, you know, where they're from, their religious background, their ethnicity, their gender, um, what they've been diagnosed with, if at all, you know, just a really short, something really short regarding, you know, what their mental health journey has looked like. And then from there, I just kind of I, I talked to them like just ca- casually to get to know them and decided from there if I was if I was interested or not. And then from there, I would if I was interested and they were too, I would make them sign a consent form before we actually had any talks with each other to kind of protect myself, legally speaking. That's cool. I mean, I that, that is interesting that you point out that like, you know, your goal was to get 50-50 and like only the girls kind of came on. And I mean, I, like you said, again, like whole nother topic, but that, it, it, that's cool that you you were able to have these conversations and meet all these different people um, in order to, you know, put together this this book of yours. Um, and, and, you know, I think through that, I'm sure you've reflected a lot on like, your place as a South Asian American, as, as, as a hyphenated identity. Um, so since our fo- podcast focuses heavily on discussing the ups and downs of having hyphenated identities, um, growing up, how did you feel about embracing your identity as a South Asian American? Um, and what does it mean to be South Asian American to you? Um, I think that growing up, I it was definitely a complicated relationship, which I'm sure many of us can agree with. Um, however, I think what makes my story interesting is the fact that I live in the most segregated city in our whole country, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, <laughs> a, a suburb of the most segregated city in our country. So um, literally, I can count the number of Indian children on one hand that I went to school with from all the way from pre-K to to high school graduation. Um, right. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I think that 
So being that I had no little to no exposure to other Indian children in the school, um, I think that I always felt different, but I couldn't put my finger on why. And then it's also like um, a lot of people can't tell that I'm Indian just by looking at me too, but probably can sense that I look a little different than the stereotypical what I went to school with, which is a bleach blonde white cheerleader type of type of look. Um, so it was complicated and it did cause me some great insecurities. And then also I'm sure a lot of people on here listening can agree with, um, or can relate to things such as not being able to date until after high school was over, um, not being allowed to stay out late at night when the other children, white American children I went to school with were allowed to do so and being seen as different for those things definitely made me feel inferior. And I think that another thing that a lot of my list, the listeners here can identify with is also as a result of all this, you know, having a desire to um, say, reject all things Indian growing up. But then once you become a grown up, then being like, okay, hold on, wait a minute, I want some of it back. It's okay to be both. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, I guess, um, with your mental health journey, specifically, just because you very much advocated for your book just to see like on your side of your story um do you feel like your identity has played a role in i guess either like um contributing to your journey in mental health or helping you or evolving with your mental health journey yeah i i think that one way that it played a role is that um as helpful as i find therapy i've never had an indian or south asian therapist before and um i had to go through the whole bump in the road in terms of educating the therapist on why i grew up the way i did why my family behaves the way they do type of thing whereas i guess that hurdle could be semi-eliminated if i had an indian therapist um but i just kind of grit my teeth and accepted it and and went through with it. So um, when I was in therapy, but then now after having written this book, it's like, um, I don't know if culture shock is the right word. Um, but right. I guess it is. But at the same time that again, I'm from Milwaukee, don't have a lot of exposure to a lot of Indian friends or anything after college ended for me, actually. And then all of a sudden, I'm talking to all these, um, these South Asians that live in different Western countries for my book. And um, it's like they taught me a lot and they helped me kind of reconnect with that part of me in a sense. And it made me decide that I guess that if and when I do go back to therapy, maybe I should go seek out an Indian therapist now that I've been thrown all these resources my way to do just that. And I think that while I did understand, while I always had an understanding um, because of the nature of my work of intersectionality when it comes to mental health, um, I think that writing the book has made me even that much more aware of just how important it is to, to have, uh, to kind of build culturally competent providers out there. That's amazing. And I, and I was going to also ask, like, you know, as you're interviewing these individuals, did you, you know, did you find yourself responding and reevaluating your own views on just what it means to be South Asian? Um, I don't know, was there like one or one story or interviewee or, or conversation that you had that really like resonated with you? And could you talk a little bit about it? Um, I don't know about just one. I think that... Okay. Um, <laughs> The reason I chose to feature all the ones that I did is because I feel like they all really had something real valuable to add and had a lot of variety to add in the stories while also having common themes that bonded all the stories together while mm -hmm. also being 
and in addition to my own experiences too, um, I will say that when it comes to um, the balancing of identities, like it was interesting for me to meet some folks who, um, such as myself, um, grew up very isolated from other Indians in the school environment or the neighborhood in which they lived, whereas others said that they were surrounded by an abundance of community from where they were. And I think that I kind of found myself, I don't know if comparing is the right word, but kind of thinking to myself, kind of admiring certain people in terms of this person really seems like they've got the hyphenated identity balanced down to a T type of thing. Right. That's interesting. Going into more of like that, that to kind of reflect on your experience with the conversations with your interviewees, um, is there any specific topics or subject matter within that you talked with with them that kind of like you got to dive deep into or you specifically focused on when you were talking with the many people that for your book? Um, I think the basic questions I would try to ask people is um, I would try to gauge um, how much of their community they grew up around in, to what degree they were immersed in, in their culture, to what degree um, they were immersed in their religious or spirituality. Um, I think that so some things, so things I focused on um, from a mental health perspective were I would try to specifically ask them how they personally, what was like that aha moment for them where they knew that they were struggling with mental health and needed help. Um, where were their aha moments where they could totally tell that there was a stigma in their community, those sorts of things. And then within that, I did find common themes, things such as think, like how academic pressure can cause a lot of our mental health woes, for example. Um, however, I noticed that um, some people would report that their parents or their family members, or, or some people would report that they pressured themselves to perform up right. to par academically much more than their elders ever pressured them, which to me right. was really interesting and ironic for someone who lived the opposite experience. Um, I came to realize things such as maybe parents who came to this country not having a lot, um, financially speaking, might not push their children as hard academically as those who did come over here highly educated. I oh, noticed, yeah, I noticed that um, from a mental health perspective that those who had parents that were born and raised in the West or just um, who moved to the West, like at younger ages, as opposed to after they got married, were a bit easier to educate on their own mental health journeys and get on the same page as them. Those kinds of things. That's really cool. Um, I, I don't know, this, is kind of, this question kind of just popped in my head when you were talking about it. Because um, you said you're as a journalist, this, this project must probably kind of grew your um, perspective or maybe like learning curve into like how to ask questions and talk to different types of guests. Like as a, as your as a standpoint or a viewpoint as a journalist, how do you feel you kind of grew in your career per se when you were like making your book? Um, I think that writing the book has pushed me out of my comfort zone, but in a good way. And also because um, I think a lot of people who know me will tell you that I am somewhat socially awkward, and um, I think that when I'm at events or back in my journalist days, when I was at events, I would just kind of, I would try to listen to other reporters in the area, ask questions and then write notes as they're talking. And then maybe like just ask a few here and there, depending on how, I guess it depended how brave I was feeling my, my ability to ask, to interview people. Whereas for this book, um, everything was done virtual. And I think that um, what I did is, 
I think that it it taught me new skills in terms of um, being able to talk to somebody before you decide if you want to tell their story just as a casual get to know you type conversation. I think that helped to further build up my social skills. And then also, um, I think I slightly improved at my ability to kind of approach sensitive topics in a more sensitive sounding way. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I totally kind of like re- relate to you in that aspect is I feel like um, wording questions and stuff was something I had to difficulty with kind of before uh, starting the podcast. But then once we started the podcast and got to like meet different people from different places, I slowly kind of learned, like you said, like how to um, form questions in a way where people can kind of like talk comfortably and try to figure out how to like probe at those deeper level topics that you can have in those deeper conversations. So I totally yeah. get that. And I think that I'm good at formulating questions. Um, just, you know, my approach and stuff could could kind of use some work. And I think that that is something that that I improved upon because obviously mental health is a sensitive topic. Um, right. I was actually, um, after my marketing career, um, I've, been, I've been doing a lot of technical writing as my full-time job for quite some time. So my writing style is like super straightforward and to the point. And I think that that's kind of how I talk too, but then I kind of learned how that could be somewhat uncomfortable in a situation where I'm asking people in their, about their mental health. I was going to I was going to ask do you have any tips or advice for our guests who might or our listeners who might be interested in pursuing like journalism or marketing or and are are trying to get their foot in the door in terms of like just getting contacts and networking and stuff. Um I would say that you should if you're like early in your career, I think that exploration is a good thing in terms of what you enjoy most and what you're the best at so that you can own in on that and then decide um, what your potential weaknesses in those areas are and to what degree you want to improve upon them to increase your options. I think that that's where exploration is for things such as internships and probably um, your first one or two years after college. Um, you know, I think that... I don't look down upon anyone for quote unquote job hopping. I think that um, right. if your brain's not developed until all the way until you're 26, you definitely can't decide what you want to do with your life, like let alone like straight out of high school. Um, so I would say that, so I would say that once you do, dis- you kind of own in on your, on your best skills and your best interests, I would say that, um, things that helped me were being on like my on some of my professors good sides that they could recommend me internships attending as many like career fairs as possible that kind of stuff and then um and yeah that's about it I think no those those are all really great advice and I think like like you said career fairs help expand your network but also your perspective on how your career can grow so those are like really important things to yes. um, consider and if you're like me and you're socially awkward too don't be afraid to seek help from places like your career development center or even a therapist to build up your social networking skills right yeah i guess kind of jumping back into like the the realm of your um book and like the, that topic i guess i know you said you identified that there was a lack in discussion in terms of talking about mental health in our community um i kind of going to that like why do you think that that is the case that there's not that much discussion or open conversation about mental health. I think that the stigma in minority marginalized communities exists period because therapy is a West, a white Western developed principle and institution in the first place built for white Westerners. Um, I think that 
that causes a lot of distrust in the system for people of color in general. Um, if I had to narrow it down to the South Asian area, um, I think a lot of us have heard things such as people with mental health disorders are labeled crazy. And that is something mm -hmm. that I touch upon in my book for sure. But um, one additional thing that I hope to highlight in the variety of my stories is um, I think that a lot of people, a lot of um, the elder generation of South Asian immigrants and people living in South Asia do not see mental health as a spectrum that every human is on. So it's like, I, they don't see it as, you know, every human being has physical health, every human being has mental health. Mental health is not the same thing as a mental illness. And I think that I highlight this in my book by sh showcasing that there are people in my book Every single one of every single person in my book either works or goes to school. That's something that one of my family members was shocked at. And that I think that goes to show just how little people in South Asian countries know about mental health. And I think that as you read my stories, you'll realize that some people have things such as high functioning anxiety and they still benefited off of things like therapy and or medication some people um got to a suicidal point but they were able to find healing in the areas of holistic health or just from the support of their closest their inner circle um some people went to therapy without having a diagnosis on record of any disorder at all right i mean i think that's a good point that you bring up the idea that like you know i feel like and this isn't i think specific to South Asian communities as well. I think it's just the idea of mental health right now, it has just a negative connotation to it. And I think people forget that mental health is not necessarily mental health, mental illness. Um, so I, I appreciate that you like make that distinction because it's definitely not talked about as much as it should be. Right. Um, like it, you know, like it's the same as physical health. Like we all have it. And, and, and I did, I, I think also the idea that like, Yes, there is a fear of like uh, institutions and fear of like, I, I don't know, just the medical field, not even in terms of mental health. Like I know for like, at least in my like, okay, example, like my parents specifically just don't trust doctors in general, <laughs> like even for physical health, they're just like very skeptical and like, uh, are you sure? Like we could just take care of this ourselves. So getting, you know, stepping over that boundary and like, oh, like, now you have to do it for mental health. Like, that's a huge jump yeah. and a huge leap, um, especially for a lot of South Asian, like, first-gen immigrants. So, yeah, like, I, I totally see that side. <laughs> yeah, and I think that another theme that gets highlighted in a lot of the stories in my book is waiting all the way until you reach a crisis point mm -hmm. in order to get help or for your elders to take your mental health seriously. Right. right. Like you have to prove it. You have to prove it. <laughs> yeah. Your life has to like be in danger type of thing. Right. It. Right. And for some people, even for some, in some of the stories, even when it reached that point, um, they, mm -hmm. their elders expected them to self-correct. Right. How, so I guess moving into like possible solutions to this, uh, conundrum, if you will, um, how do you think like we as a community can start opening up discussions around mental health within our friend circles and even maybe families as well who are like ready to talk about it? 
Um, I think that books such as mine, as well as social media movements are slowly starting to open up the conversation. So for example, I thought that only second generationers would be interested in my book, but then several Indian like elder family members and acquaintances bought it and they would say things like, wow, I never realized that those in the younger generations go through so much pressure to like fit in and whatever else. And like they learned something from it. So intergenerational healing in a sense. And that was the goal of my book. Um, I think that the other solution is that there definitely needs to be more brown people working in the, the um, mental health fields, um, probably both psychiatry and psychology, but especially psychology more than anything. Um, so thankfully there are things such as the Brown Therapist Network, um, the South Asian Therapist Directory out there to help people seek out people who speak their language or, and know their culture. So definitely we need to keep that up in order to um, reduce the distrust in these institutions that people in our community have. Cause I think that um, some people will report to you, report that um, their family members um, were more, were more um, likely to have more of a desire to learn about men, their their children's suffering when they were being talked to by a doctor who looked like them. That's interesting. Um, going into like if you're if you're comfortable like going into your own relationship with mental health, could you kind of like tell us a little bit about your story? Um, like in kind of like growing up, how you kind of kind of went through your mental health journey. Sure. So, um, I told you earlier that I I've been socially awkward for quite some time. Um, so. I'll, I'll say that for the first 20 years of my life, it was it was the most limiting to me, I should say, um, in terms of I didn't. So throughout um, elementary, middle and high school, I only had like friends like within the school itself. I couldn't expand friendships. Um, so and my family would notice this as well, where the kid the kids were the kids in my neighborhood would run around and play on the streets together, whereas I'd just be off to the corner in my house, not saying or doing anything. And um, it worried them, but nothing was done about it. And I think, and I think in a, so in addition to my social struggles with severe shyness, um, there was also academic struggles too. And I think that a lot of our, the listeners here can say that probably the academic that they experienced that academic inferiority within their own communities was huge. So um, I'll, so I'll say that in school, I had difficulty with the traditional model of learning, let's just say, Um, I struggled with things like missing instructions, not meeting homework deadlines, that kind of stuff. So a lot of what you call executive functioning struggles from a mental health perspective, concentration, following directions, organization, um, I graduated high school with a B plus A minus average, but that's thanks to the help of my parents. Um, they have a master's and a PhD, and they would be the ones that would nag me to do my homework daily, check it for accuracy, that kind of stuff, um, which that's that's something I'm incredibly grateful for. But at the same time, maybe if I would have gotten that type of one-on-one assistance and care in the classroom environment, it would have taken some of some of um, the the headache off of their hands in the household. Um, Mm -hmm. So year after year, teachers would complain about that during these things during conferences, but nothing was ever done about it outside the household. And they never recommended that I go get tested for anything. So um, I think that 
Um, I was kind of just resigned to thinking that this was my fate for the longest time. But at the same time, I think my intuition told me for many years that there's got to be some explanation to my struggles. And then coincidentally, um, when I was a sophomore in college, I was just hanging out in the student union, just walking. And then someone at a table says, would you like to take a free depression screening? And then I was like, okay, I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but I said, okay. And then um, at the end, he showed me my results and said, you have really high markers for anxiety, a lot of anxiety disorders. And then um, he said, you know, we have a student clinic here where um, graduate students for, in psychology um, provide therapy to our students while being supervised by someone with a PhD, if you'd be interested for just $5 a session. And then again, I said, sure. Right. And then basically from there, I worked with this woman for a year and um, going into it, my markers for social anxiety were considered severe. And then at the end of our work together, they were considered mild to moderate. So that's where my journey started. I don't want to bore you too much. <laughs> no, 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 you're not. It's, I think well, what I wanted to say was when you're talking about like when you were younger, I think that's such an important factor to talk about just because a lot of times kids growing up in development phases, like teachers don't realize like um, they don't have the exposure or the education to be like, there are multiple other factors. It could just like, like you said, you um had like a, uh, like the concentration and like the understanding of picking up um, like material and stuff like that was something that was hard for you. Like teachers should understand that like people learn differently. And I feel like educating teachers on how to approach like a variety of type of students would be such a great way to approach this so that other, like, so people don't have to like miss on like any like mental health um, tr um, warnings or like things where like you take it with you into your adult life. Cause I feel like that just makes every, that like continues that problem. And it's kind of similar to how the, um, south asian community as we feel i feel like the south asian community kind of like suppresses the mental health like you said until it gets to a really bad stage yeah it has to be up yeah and i think things like when you're at a young age talking about like are like your teachers are not like missing these markers or seeing you not seeing you grow or like maybe identifying it rather than like telling you hey it's a problem to your parents at conferences being like hey this could be something you should focus yeah. on would be great right. ways I feel like would be that could like help us propel for, further into kind of like the stuff that you were talking about earlier. And I don't know how things are now for kids. Maybe there is some more awareness probably, but um, being that I was a 90s baby, I think that um, back then the mindset was probably you're, you either have cognitive disability, you have ADHD or nothing type of thing. And, right, right. Um, and even for things such as ADHD and autism and neurodivergence, the, the females and the quiet kids would be the ones that were overlooked. So I think that the kids that were like a disruption or distracting the class were the ones that were easiest to spot and therefore the mm -hmm. ones that the teachers wanted to call out and treat immediately with, in some way, even if it's just by pumping their bodies with Ritalin just to shut them up so that they can lecture type right, of thing. Right, right. Right. Um, so I think that's, I think it, it is a combination of my having been a shy, quiet child and, um, you know, a female too. Um, right, right. And I think that some may say that maybe being in a white suburbia, these teachers never encountered a lot of Indian children with mental health disorders and didn't necessarily come up with the ideology that I had one or something. No, that that's a good point. Actually, I was having a conversation with another friend, like off podcast, you know, whatever. But I, I think that came up where, you know, mental health issues, like, it's not like the people who are the kids who are told 
the kids that have mental health issues and and doctors and teachers and all this stuff have been educated to see and identify we don't look like them <laughs> so like so like them it took for them to identify that in us is very difficult I think um and, and we don't present symptomatically as they do right right like we just don't look like what they would expect from a mental like I think we are we also have this like cultural entanglement like generational trauma that's entangled with all of the stuff that we also just naturally might have so there's just an added layer of like things that we have and we just don't look like what they're told to look out for and yeah I see what you're saying you know so I I do I think that's that's definitely a good point I also like the point that you brought out like when you're in college and I think like the idea of getting therapy is now becoming more normalized but now it's more of the discussion of like I can't afford it or I don't I don't want to pay this much money for to you know whatever but I think you bring up a good point like these resources might exist in certain universities and it might be a good opportunity to look into and that's how a lot of people in my book got involved in therapy right right like it doesn't have to be this giant thing it could just be you know you could just go just to see how it is and you're always allowed to like say no if if it's too much and the same principle applies to trying medicines too right right so I think that's very important, uh, definitely important points to, to to discuss and incorporate within our conversation, at least uh, within the South Asian community now. I, I was also going to say, uh, you know, did you did you have any like difficult conversations with your loved ones about mental health in response to your book? In response to the book, um, I would say yeah. that I so from family members and friends who read it, I got an all positive response. But I do think that like with my parents, there was somewhat of a learning curve where I had to kind, there were things regarding mental health and mental illness that I had to teach them more of as a byproduct of the book. And then there were uncomfortable conversations regarding how come I never got help type of thing. Um, I think that there's some understandings we came to, but also ones that I have to kind of remind myself, okay, they, we may, we may both, we're both Indian, but they're from India, whereas I'm from America, they're going to see things differently and right. we can't see eye to eye and everything. Um, in terms of, I guess, taking that same question that Sneha asked, um, did you have any difficult conversations with your loved ones in terms of like what the, your career choices? Like, because you want, you are currently in a field where um, it's not really like that path that people kind of expect. So like in, in our community specifically, like journalism and writing. So I, did you have any difficult conversations in terms of like career and stuff like that when you kind of went into journalism and writing? Um, yes, I would say that um, girl. So I come from two engineers with advanced degrees. So um, there were constant arguments growing up um, in the household about how subjects such as math and science are the ones you need to survive in the world, whereas I liked writing. Um, they never, no one ever said don't write, but um, regarding career choices, um, the mindset was I should aim for nothing less than straight A so I have as much options as possible. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that my family knew from a young age that I would not go into a STEM field and kind of had to accept that by the time I was a teenager even though they don't really like it. Um, actually, they're the ones who, my parents are the, I think either my my dad is the one who um, said when I started talking about wanting to do journalism, how 
it's super competitive and low paying. And then he was like, why not minor in that and study something else a bit more practical? So then that's kind of why I chose to go into business school with a concentration in marketing. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, I can, I can see like, I can totally understand, I guess, what your parents, like, because, like, that's, like, a lot of people have talked about, like, that disconnect between their parents and um, them when they're talking about careers, and because, like, that survivability, they're, like, you should have all your options open. Um, so it's good that you were able to kind of have that conversation with your parents and be, like, hey, this is something I'm really passionate about, and I kind of still want, I still want to be this main focus area rather than put it into the back burner that a lot of people tend to do when they think about, like, let me have all my op- options open, and let me look at the highest paying job as my career yeah. path. So I didn't do exactly what their first choice for me would have been in life. But um, yeah, it was kind of a little bit of both, uh, both what we both wanted, I guess, compromised. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I guess as we kind of like wrap up this segment, um, in terms of your career, um, what are your what are some future goals that you have for yourself as like a writer? And is there any other goals outside of that, your career that you have for yourself, um, even like with your book and stuff? Um, So for now, my goal with the book is to put it out there on as many South Asian type of channels as much as possible, because I really want as many South Asians as possible to read this, um, regardless to whether they're in the millennial and younger generation or not, um, because I'm I'm finding just how healing it has been to the community. Um, so, So then... Outside of that, I would say that in the long run, maybe a few years from now, maybe I would write a book on men's mental health because I struggled so hard to even just find the two men who told their stories in my book. Not on men's mental health, maybe something such as um, maybe stories about South Asians on the LGBTQ spectrum. Um, so basically the theme is I, I, would, I like to write about, um, I guess, taboo subjects in our community mm, okay. right, and bring them right. to a light. That's awesome. And also just, I guess the last last question, um, do you have any tips or advice for listeners who are going through their own mental health journeys um, and, you know, what they can do to kind of come to terms with that and navigate that? Um, I would say that if you're of South Asian descent, then definitely take up on the um, resources out there to get you connected with a South Asian therapist. I'm, I'm not saying everyone needs to do this. For some, a white American therapist is more than good enough. Um, I would say that if you're hesitant due to fearing not being understood and having to go through the headache of educating a, a therapy provider about the cultural or religious dynamics that you grew up under and how they contribute to your mental health, then seek someone with a at least similar background. And I would say that don't give up over one bad experience either. Um, For some people, finding a therapist is like finding a boyfriend or a girlfriend where (laughs) you have to meet the wrong one, the quote unquote wrong match a few times Mm -hmm. until you find one that really works for you. Um, I would say that it's not just about therapy either. Um, One thing that a person in the book said that who told their story in the book said to me was that they learned that healing is nonlinear. And what that means to me is that literally different things work for different people. And I have lived that experience where um, I'm one of the few people I know who respects Eastern and Western wellness equally. Um, I feel like provider, I feel like people on both sides, like in the mass media, kind of bash the other one. Um, And what I mean by that, so what I mean by respecting equally is I've benefited off of therapy and psychiatric medicine I also benefit from things like Ayurveda. I'm a big 
a promoter of that if that's something that I would totally encourage someone to look into as well. Ayurveda, yoga, um, holistic nutrition, that kind of stuff. And yeah, I would just say be open-minded, try something, try it multiple times before you decide whether it's for you or not and don't give up from there. That's awesome. And with that note, uh, thank you, Myrnal, for coming on to the show to talk about Cyan Veiled, South Asian Mental Health Spotlighted. Kirthi and I had a great time talking to you about mental health within the South Asian diaspora. For our listeners, Myrnal's book is available for paperback and Kindle purchase exclusively on Amazon, and we'll have a link in our episode description for you to check it out. Thanks again, Myrnal. Thank you. We hope you guys enjoyed all the conversations we had today. Um, go check us out on Instagram at redefiningABCD and feel free to let us know your thoughts on this episode. And as always, if you know anyone who'd be interested in being interviewed for a future Brown Art Network segment, either direct message us on Instagram or email us at redefiningABCD at gmail.com. And as always, stay safe and happy. We'll see you all in the next one.